All of us, of course, are, are thinking a lot about the war in the Gulf. It seems to be a dominant part of our life. And I've been doing some thinking about it, too, and, and how we can relate to it with a strategic look at the Scripture. I'd like you to take your Bible, if you will, back to Second Chronicles, chapter 26. And I want to take an Old Testament illustration that I think can give us a perspective that would be helpful. As I mentioned to the folks at Grace Church yesterday, America really enjoys the idea of, of being the strong, noble defender. There's a good feeling in our country today about America. It was really demonstrated, uh, I think, most dramatically in the Super Bowl when Whitney Houston sang the uh, national anthem. And if you saw that particular part of the Super Bowl, it was almost unbelievable response by people. Flag-waving and emotion like that hasn't existed in my lifetime. And I don't think there was anything in World War II even that captured the media attention that that single event did. People were absolutely ecstatic about the national anthem because they feel so good about America. We're, we're sort of into a macho mentality in America. We like being the knight on the white horse. We like being Superman to the rescue. We like being the hero of the world. And with all of the drug problems and all of the problems of crime and the disintegration of family and society and the abortions and all the stuff that makes us feel badly about America, it was really kind of nice, I guess, uh, for people to be able to exhaust their emotions in the expression of patriotic zeal that everybody saw. And at the time, I couldn't help but think that if Roseanne Barr had tried to sing the national anthem uh, at that time and place, they would have torn her limb from limb without any question. But there's a whole mood in America that bespeaks our, our thrill, as it were, of the fact that America is still a great nation. We're still the hero of the world. We've still come to the rescue of this little place called Kuwait. We feel good about that. And it tends to give us, I think, a, a, maybe an out-of-balance, an out-of-perspective picture of the true condition of our nation. And as I was thinking about that, I was drawn to the story of King Isaiah. Go back, back with me for a moment to Second Chronicles chapter 26. And there's a perspective that comes out of the life of, of this man that we need to have. And it says in verse 1 of Second Chronicles, All the people of Judah took Isaiah, who was 16 years old, made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. So he started to be king when he was 16 years old, and he was king until he was 68. So for 52 years, uh, he remained as king. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his father. Isaiah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So he started out right. He lasted 52 years. He ended up pretty badly, as we shall see, however. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. So he was a king for a long time. You can only imagine having a president the two years who was very obedient to God, who was a good man, who brought about tremendous economic prosperity, material prosperity in Judah. Uh, the people of Judah enjoyed prosperity under Isaiah. He was very effective as a ruler. He also brought them not only internal prosperity, but a strong position militarily. In verse 6, it says, He went out and warred against the Philistines. He broke down the wall of Gath, which was a major city in Philistia. 
broke the wall of Jabna, the wall of Ashdod, more cities in Philistia. He built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. That's an occupying force. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians, the Arabs who lived in Gerbaal and the Munites. The Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah. In other words, they paid him whatever he asked because they were afraid of him. His fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and the valley gate and the corner buttress and fortified them. In other words, he fortified the city of Jerusalem, put great towers there so he could see any advancing enemy. He built towers in the wilderness. He hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Everything was going great. The animals were flourishing. The water was being dug out of the cisterns and the wells. The fields were flourishing with grain. The hillsides were filled with vineyards. There was tremendous economic prosperity. There were towers all over the place so he could see whether any enemy was advancing. Moreover, verse 11, Isaiah had an army ready for battle. And it was not just your average army. This army, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, prepared by Jeel the scribe and Messiah the official under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers, the total number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600, and under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. This is a third of a million people who are crack soldiers who can wage war effectively. Moreover, Uzziah not only had this kind of human warfare capability, but he prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. So this army was really outfitted in terms of primitive standards. And in Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Here is a man who has reached, by all standards, invincibility in terms of his military capability. There wouldn't have been any roaming nomadic tribe of Arabs who would have taken on this kind of formidable foe. Immense military power. And not only did he have that, but internally the country was flourishing, he was popular, he was beloved by his people. In fact, they viewed him as sort of the, the evidence of God's blessing. As long as Isaiah was king and as long as there was prosperity and as long as there was tremendous military power that could withstand any kind of onslaught and keep all of their enemies at bay, they believed that God had his hand of blessing on the nation. The truth of the matter is they couldn't have been more wrong. On the one hand, here was economic prosperity. On the other hand, here was military power, military prowess demonstrated at a massive, massive level. The truth of the matter was, however, that no matter how strong the nation looked militarily and economically, they were headed for a disaster. In fact, they were headed for the inevitable judgment of God. Verse 16 says, when he became strong... His heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. It showed up when he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. You say, what does that mean? He entered into the priestly office, which belonged only to those who by right of birth could enter it. 
But because he felt invincible, he felt he could even take on God. And he thought he could enter into the priestly function. And as a result, he was given leprosy. He was thrown out and he died as a leper. The end of the chapter even says that his epitaph basically was he is a leper. So here was a man who had it all, who led his nation to great victory and prosperity. But the bottom line was that underneath, disaster was about to happen. First it happened to him, and then it happened to the whole nation, for the Babylonians came and took them captive, massacred them, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, dispossessed the people, and hauled them off into what we know as the Babylonian captivity. That came much later. The Assyrians also came and took the northern kingdom away captive under the leadership of the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. In order to get a perspective on this, turn over in your Bible now to Isaiah, and we pick up the story of Isaiah in Isaiah chapters 5 and 6. And I want to take you through that story, if briefly. You notice in chapter 6, verse 1, that it says there that in the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord. So we know that as we come to chapters 5 and 6 of Isaiah's prophecy, we are right around the same time, right around the same time as Second Chronicles chapter 26. In fact, he died in 740 B.C., as best we can tell, after, as you noted, reigning for 52 years. So we now come to the time of his death, which is not long after the time, of course, of his tremendous conquering and his tremendous prosperity. And something terrible has taken place that I think serves as a good Old Testament historic illustration of our own condition. Here we are in America, and we are demonstrating to the world immense military power. Obviously, you're very much aware of the fact that we have more power than we have yet demonstrated. In fact, in one act, in one moment of time, we could literally remove Iraq from the face of the earth if we elected to do that. We are showing the world our military capability. We are showing the world the power of our military might. At the same time, the world is very much aware of the prosperity of America, of our economics, of the fact that we are among the elite and the wealthy of the world and the prosperous, and we enjoy, in fact, a lifestyle that exceeds the lifestyle of more wealthy nations than we are because we have had years and years to develop this lifestyle, even if it is a lifestyle indebted to our indebtedness. And so the world looks at us and sees us as economically prosperous and living the most affluent lifestyle imaginable. The world looks at us and sees us as militarily powerful and victorious and displaying military might at a level that has never been done in the history of, of war. In fact, you might be interested to know that our firepower expended in the first 14 days of the war in the Middle East exceeded the, all the firepower expended in the last 14 months of World War II. Unbelievable barrage of firepower. And that's only a part of what is available to us. And so here we are, militarily strong, economically prosperous. And in fact, we're in the same situation exactly that Judah was in, because while we look good on the outside, we're rotten on the inside, and we need to see the parallel here. In chapter 5, I want you to, to start out with me by looking at a parable there, very interesting parable, and it sets the scene for us to understand chapter 6. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. Now, what you have here is a song in, in a parabolic form 
It is a sad song. It is an elegy, an exquisite elegy. It is a plaintive weeping song. It is a tragic song. It is a funeral song. It is a dirge, to borrow an old word. And here you have one member of the Trinity apparently singing this funeral dirge to another member. And the song goes like this. My beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now, that's the song. It doesn't have meter and rhyme in English. It would in Hebrew. That's the song. In response to the song, which is to be a parable, you read in verse 3, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Here's a rhetorical question. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? That's a rhetorical question. If you go back and you see what this guy did in building the vineyard, there was nothing more he could have done. He, he put the vineyard on a fertile hill. The soil was good. He dug it all around. That's the moat. That's the way you protect it, by hedging it in or providing a moat so that animals don't come in and insects come in and, and destroy your vine. He removed its stones, taking all the stones out of the soil so the roots would have freedom to grow and move toward the water. He planted it with the choicest vine. Whatever vine he selected to, to plant was the very best. He built a tower in the middle of it. That's a watchtower from which he could survey the surrounding area and anything that would threaten it. He hewed out a proper wine vat to crush the grapes, and he had every reason to expect that it would produce good grapes, but it produced in the Hebrew bu'ushim, which are little sour berries that are absolutely inedible, useless. Now, if you were alive in that agrarian society and you had any kind of idea what went into this effort, you'd feel sad about this, and it would be a funeral song for you, too. Because in the first place, the man invested all of his money into this. He invested a tremendous amount of his time. He had to buy the land. He had to work the land. He had to plant the vine. All that he went through should have guaranteed him a good product. And the sad truth was that when he got done, he got nothing but sour berries. And he asks the question, what more could I have done in verse 4? And the answer, of course, is you couldn't have done anything more. You did everything you could have done. And then in verse 5, he says, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. And here's a curse. I'll remove its hedge, its protection. It'll be consumed. I'll break down its wall. It'll become trampled ground. I'll lay it waste. It won't be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns will come up. I will charge the clouds to rain, no rain upon it. Uh, there's the curse on the vineyard. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it be destroyed. It's unproductive. No matter what I've done to it, it's, it's unproductive. I'm going to let it go to destruction. The question is, what's he talking about? Verse 7 gives you the answer. Fascinating. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. He's been talking about Judah, Israel. He looked for justice. After all he had done for them, he expected justice, but behold, he got bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, instead, a cry of distress. That's a play on words in Hebrew. He looked for mishpath, he got mispach. He looked for tzedakah, he got tzedakah. God expected justice and righteousness, and instead there was the bloodshed and the cry of distress of an unrighteous, ungodly people. Now, go back to the parable for a moment and remember what God did when He planted Israel in the land. 
First of all, he said he planted a vineyard on a fertile hill. The fertile hill is the land of Canaan, the land that flows with milk and what? And honey, the best land on the face of the earth, the most productive piece of soil. He gave them that land of Canaan. By the way, in the original covenant, he gave them not only the land that we know as Canaan, but he gave them everything to the east of it, which would have encompassed what is now known to be the most valuable piece of real estate on the face of the earth because of its oil, which would include all the Middle East, all the way into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, where all that oil that the world is fighting over right now is located. Not only did they have the tremendous blessedness of the most fertile valley equaled only in the world by the San Joaquin Valley, the Jordan Valley, for producing crops. Not only did they have the Dead Sea, the most chemically rich body of water in the world, not only did they have the mountains of Lebanon, timber-filled, wealthy beyond description at one time because of the tree value, not only did they have all of that, but then they had the oil-rich Middle Eastern Babylonian and Mesopotamian Valley. All of it was given to them. He gave them the most fertile hill on the face of the earth. And then in putting them in the land, it says he dug it all around, which means God gave them means by which to separate them from the peoples around them. He gave them religious laws, ceremonial laws, dietary laws, clothing laws, social laws, laws about marriage and all of that, which would isolate them, which would separate them, which would sanctify them or set them apart. It was very difficult for the Jewish people to have ready uh, intercourse and access to the nations around them because their lifestyle was so prescribed. Even today, when you come across what we would call a kosher Jew or an Orthodox Jew, they are a conundrum in culture and they don't interface with anything because of the uniqueness of all the rules by which they live their life. God gave them those rules to separate them from the nations which would threaten their very existence. Then it says, he removed the stones. The first thing that God told them to do when they went into the land was kill the Canaanites. That was an act of divine judgment. God was using them as a weapon of justice and punishment upon malignant cultures which were anti-God, anti-truth, and he wanted them removed. And so God was willing and God on occasion allowed them to remove the stones, the Canaanitish stones that blocked the soil of productivity. And then it says he planted the choicest vine. And anybody will tell you, anybody who knows anything about anthropology, that the line of Homo sapiens that we call Jews is as noble or nobler than any other strain of humankind. There are only 14 million of them on the face of the earth, and yet they are the leaders in so many, many realms of human life. It is a noble strain of humanity, the Jewish people. He built a tower, probably refers to Jerusalem, a wine vat to the sacrificial system, which would provide the proper covering for their sins. And with all that God had done in the life of Israel, he expected them to produce good fruit. But instead, what they produced was sour berries, not even edible. And so God says, could I have done anything more? Could I have done anything more? Even in the reign of Isaiah, I gave them military power. I gave them economic prosperity. I have done everything imaginable. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Because of the sour berries they produced, I'm going to let them be destroyed. I'm not going to protect them anymore. I'm going to let them be destroyed. And this is a prophecy of the Babylonian captivity, a prophecy also of the total destruction that started with the northern captivity by Assyria, ended up with the southern captivity by Babylon. Now, that's the parable. That's the overall picture. Here was a nation at the height of its military prowess. Here was a nation at the height of its internal domestic material prosperity. 
and they thought everything was fine. The bottom line was it wasn't fine. And I see here a classic illustration of our own situation. The world looks at us and says they're prosperous and they're powerful. God looks at us and says we're on the edge of judgment. We're on the brink of disaster. Because while we look good materially and we look good militarily, we don't look good spiritually, right? And neither did Israel, Judah. Beginning in verse 8, God penetrates a little more deeply into the situation. And you have a series of curses pronounced on them for specific sins. See how they parallel our own time. Verse 8. He lists six specific sins that characterize the Jewish people. Number one in verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room, so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. Here's a picture of what we'll call grasping materialism. People who just accumulate wealth, house to house, field to field, land to land, until they've consumed everything in sight, and they've consumed it all for their own pleasure, so that they can live in isolation. Grasping materialism, a consumptive culture. In verse 9, he says, In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, Surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. I'll empty those places. I'll take the people right out of those places, and they'll become empty. And that's what happened in the Babylonian captivity. The great and fair houses that the wealthy had amassed were desolate and empty. Furthermore, you'll notice he brings famine conditions to those who've accumulated field to field. Verse 10 says, Ten acres of a vineyard will yield only one bath. That's four gallons. Can you imagine having ten acres of a vineyard and getting four gallons of juice out of it? Then he says, A homer of seed, which is 48 gallons, will yield but an ephah, which is 4.8 gallons. 48 gallons of seed will only equal 4.8 gallons of crop. What that means is famine conditions. God says, I'm going to destroy the houses and empty them, and I'm going to cause famine in the land. I'm going to punish their grasping materialism. Verse 11 gives a second curse. The word woe means to damn or to curse. He says, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. This has to do with drunkenness. And then he adds this. And their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. Here we find the party time gang, the, the, the singles bar crowd, the TGIF group, the good time Charlies, who drink alcohol for the purpose of intoxication and do so accompanying it with music, lyre and harp, tambourine, flute and wine. And then he says in verse 12, they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Probably a reference to their own physical body, which is the handiwork of God. They dissipate their own body. So we'll call it drunken dissipation. A characteristic of Israel, isn't that amazing, was they were into drunken dissipation. They started drinking early in the morning. They drank all day long and all night long, and they threw in it the party time mentality of music, and you had the good time Charlies of the ancient world. In the midst of their drunken dissipation, they had no regard for the creation of God who had made their bodies. They paid no attention at all to Him. And He talks about how He is going to destroy them how he's going to punish them. He tells in verse 14 that the grave is going to open its mouth and swallow them. Down in verse 18, we find a third sin. 
The first one was grasping materialism. The second was drunken dissipation. The third one is defiant sinfulness. This is quite fascinating in verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. That's a very vivid picture. What it pictures is the sinner like a beast of burden, like an ox or a mule. And tied to this guy is a wagon load of sin, which he pulls around like it was a float in some parade. He's putting his display, his sin on display. That's the idea. They drag their iniquity with the cords of falsehood and they haul around their sin in a cart as if they were connected to it by ropes. And here they are parading through life with a wagon load of sin that they don't want to hide, but they want to parade. And then it says that their defiance is unbelievable. Verse 19. They say, let him, referring to God, make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. You say, what are they saying? What do they mean? This is simply what they mean. If God doesn't like it, let's see him stop us. Go ahead, God, make speed. Go ahead, God, hasten your work. Go ahead, God, do whatever purpose you want to. Go ahead, let it come to pass that we may see it. That's sarcastic defiance. They're shaking their fist in the face of God in their defiant sinfulness. The third characteristic, then, is defiant sinfulness. It's one thing to be sinful. It's something else to parade it. It's one thing to be sinful and parade it. It's something else to be defiant and shake your fist in the face of God and say, if you don't like it, let's see you do something about it. But that kind of defiant sinfulness is also characteristic of our own culture. We live in a culture where sin is flaunted, where it's worn like notches on a belt, if not carried around in a wagon load for everybody to see, and where there is an open and flagrant and vehement defiance of God and of Jesus Christ. Very familiar to us. The fourth sin for which they were to be destroyed is in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is moral perversion. They had reversed all values and all morality. They had switched everything. What used to be wrong was right. What used to be right was wrong. We're living in such a society today. I continue to be astounded at the moral perversion that is characteristic of our culture. Once uh, Sexual sin outside marriage was wrong and marriage was right and now sexual sin is right and noble and beautiful and lovely and marriage is the pits. Once to be a homosexual and to engage in homosexuality was perversion and distortion of God's intention. Now it is accepted as an alternative lifestyle. It is advocated even in elementary schools by people who say they are educators. The moral perversion in our culture certainly is the equal, if not surpassing, that of the ancient Jews. Another sin is listed, the fifth one in verse 21, and this is one you can all identify with. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Sometimes I think if I hear another talk show, I'll be ill. It is characteristic of a degenerated, dissipated culture that has no standard to make everybody's opinion equal to every other opinion. I think just as a footnote, to, to put this in a tangible way, while we wouldn't say that Phil Donahue and Geraldo Rivera were philosophers, and we certainly wouldn't say that they were overtly cultural architects, people like that have been more effective in driving the culture 
in America into the sewer than any philosophers in our whole country. Why? Because they have given a forum to every single aberration that exists. And in creating the forum for every imaginable and unimaginable aberration, they have consequently made those acceptable, viable. Somebody thinks they're right. It's somebody's opinion that it's okay. And so those who are clever in their own sight and wise in their own eyes, who base everything on human opinion, have literally become the architects of the immorality of our time. The last sin that is noted in verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Stop at that point. Very interesting verse. The word heroes and the words valiant men refer to leaders. There are two Hebrew words that refer to leaders. It says he's talking about leaders here who who get drunk. Drunk leaders. But it's more than that. Follow along. Verse 23, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Corrupt leadership. We are exposed to it almost in in. Huge megadoses as we watch the demise of our leaders as the truth about their being bribed, their being unfair, unjust, their drinking and so forth is exposed to the public. Now, there you have six sins that God indicts Israel for. Grasping materialism, drunken dissipation, defiant sinfulness, moral perversion, arrogant conceit, corrupt leadership. Now, young people, I believe with all my heart, You have a graphic illustration that we can take right over and use to help us understand the times in which we live. We are not the covenant people of God. They were. As the covenant people of God, which bore special promise from God, when they lived like this, they couldn't possibly prevent the judgment of God. They didn't prevent it. What makes us think we will when we're not even the covenant people of God? They had something working for them we don't have working for us. And I think the scenario is very much the same. Here we are at the pinnacle of military might. Here we are at the pinnacle of economic prosperity. Here we are in terms of the world looking at us and saying America is where it's at. America's got it all. Massive power and prosperity. But the truth is, when God looks at us, He sees a sad song. It isn't time to sing the national anthem. It's time to sing a funeral song. It's time to sing a dirge, an elegy for our nation because we're on the brink of judgment, guilty of the identical sins that God identifies in Israel as the reason for their destruction and captivity. Now, the question is this. If we are alive in this time, and we are, what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people is God looking for in a time like this? We are the people of this time. Certainly, we would like to believe that the mission of the Master's College is to produce a generation of young people who are suited to the times, who are fit for the hour in which they live, who are not just going to dribble their lives away in meaningless trivia, but who are going to make a life count in a strategic moment in God's redemptive history. And in order to be those kinds of people, we need to look for just a brief moment at chapter 6. And find out here the scenario that unfolds around the concept of what kind of people God is looking for. Now, in the year that King Isaiah died, now that's very important. First of all, it's important to Isaiah. But beyond him, 
It's very important because it, what it means is that the symbol of God's blessing is gone. As long as Isaiah was alive, it was as if God had his hand of blessing on the nation. And no matter how messed up they were internally, no matter how immoral they were, how ungodly they were, how perverted they were, how self-centered they were, as long as Isaiah was still on the throne through those 52 years, it was as if God was saying, you're still okay. You're still all right. We can feel such a false security when we have presidents who claim to be Christians and and to tell us that they're seeking God and praying to God and it's a time to turn to God. And our President Bush has even declared a day of prayer passed already in which we are all to seek the face of God. And, and it's as if uh, somehow uh, we might come under the illusion that because we have such a, a person in place, this is the stamp of God's favor upon us. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah died, and he died in a gross kind of way, invading the priestly office, hit with the dreaded disease of leprosy. He became an outcast until his death. And so here is the prophet Isaiah. And he goes to the temple. Why? Because everything is starting to fall apart all around him. He's just gotten this message of six curses, six, six damning sins. The king has died, and now he goes to the temple, and he's going to check in with God. It looks like everything's going to pieces. Everything's disintegrating. Everything is falling apart. And he knows that his people are a covenant people, and he's worried and fearful. He doesn't understand what's going on. So who does he seek? He seeks God. He does what he ought to do. He goes to the temple, and he's looking for God because he wants to check in with God and find out how to understand all this. So he goes to the temple, and he has a vision. He has a vision. What is a vision? I've never had one. They were suited for special people in special times of revelation. But nonetheless, he had something which was very real. He had a vision of the Lord. And if you look at verse 1, just very quickly, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. This is the first thing in the vision. He sees God lofty and exalted. That's good. That means he sees the majesty of God. He sees God the high at the highest point. At the highest point, he says that important right, because that means nobody else has taken over, right? God is still on the highest throne. With all the bad things going on around him, he might be questioning whether God was still in charge. Maybe Satan had won some mortal blow against God himself, and Satan was now on the highest throne. No, he checks in, and God is still on the throne that's lofty and exalted. God is still at the peak. God is still at the pinnacle. He's still on top. Furthermore, the throne speaks of sovereignty. God is still totally in control. He is still totally in charge. He has not abdicated his throne, and the throne still carries the same weight and the same power. Then he sees the train of the robe, which would be like the Shekinah glory, the emanating light that flows out of God, which speaks of God's glorious, majestic holiness, and it fills the whole temple in his vision. So there he is seeking the Lord. He sees the Lord. He sees him as majesty. He sees him as sovereignty. He sees him as emanating glory and holiness. And so he has an image in his vision of the glory, the majesty, the sovereignty, the exalted nature of God. That's very important. God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. God is still all glorious. God is still in charge. That's a great comfort to him initially. Even with Tiglath-Pileser camped on the northern border, this is encouraging. And then it says in verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
they cover their face because angels are created beings who can't look fully on the glory of God without being consumed. They cover their feet for the area in which they stand is holy ground. And with two, they hover like celestial helicopters. The Hebrew word means to hover, waiting to be dispatched to do whatever God wants them to do. These are the holy angels, the seraphim who guard his holiness. You'll notice four of their wings are related to God's holiness and only two are related to service. Holiness is always the priority. Worship is always the priority. And then in verse 3, there's an antiphonal response. One of these holy angels calls out to another. Back and forth they go and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now we move from the majesty and the sovereignty and the, the exalted glory of God to His holiness. Holy is very simple to understand. It means utterly apart from sin. Utterly apart from sin. It means to be separated. Separated from what? From sin. And God is utterly other than we are in that He is utterly and completely and totally separated from sin. There's no sin in Him. John put it this way, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. First John 1. He is light. He is holiness. And the fact that it's said three times is to emphasize that this is His unique character. He is utterly other than we are because he is utterly separate from sin. So he sees then the the glory of God, and now he hears the holiness of God being sung. Verse 4 takes it another step. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Now all of a sudden, smoke starts to fill the place. The whole building starts to shake as these angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy. This is a devastating experience. He is seeing God, and it is a frightening experience. The first half was comforting. The second half is literally frightening. The whole building begins to shake. Smoke starts to fill the place. And no doubt, Isaiah is very much aware of the truth that God is a consuming fire. When God came down on Sinai, He came in flaming fire, and the people were told not to touch the mountain because of its great holiness. Here is God in His holiness And the vision is absolutely devastating. Look at his response in verse 5. Very interesting. Then I said, what do you think he said? What do you think he said when he had a vision of God? You think he said, this is wonderful. I'm going to go on Christian TV. Tell about this. I've seen God. That ought to make a few good love offerings. The man who saw God. Is that what he says? Or does he say, hey, I don't, I don't guess anybody else ever had this experience. I'm, I must be one of a kind. I must be special for God to, to do this for me. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is this. Curse me, consign me to hell, destroy me, blot me out. All that's bound up in the word woe, for I am disintegrating in the Hebrews, in the Hebrew language. I'm falling apart. I am crumbling into pieces. What in the world's going on? What's happening here? The man is properly devastated. And look what he says. Because I'm a man with a dirty mouth, literally, and I live among a people with dirty mouths. Now you say, wait a minute, Isaiah, you, you, you got a bad self-image. You need help, Isaiah. You need to see a counselor. You, you, you'll never make it if you have that bad self-image. You're a wonderful guy. Don't you know you're the prophet? When you open your mouth, God talks. You you have a better mouth than anybody else. You have a wonderful mouth. 
God speaks through your mouth. What are you talking about? You've got to see yourself in another light, my dear friend. God can't use you if you've got this terrible view of yourself. And then at the end of the little statement, he says, well, you don't understand. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And compared to him, I'm filthy. It all depends on who you compare yourself to, right? I mean, if you want to elevate your sense of your self-worth, if you want to escalate your self-image, you can always find some crummy person to compare yourself with. But if you come off comparing yourself with a holy God, it isn't going to do anything positive for your self-image. It's going to devastate you. And young people, I really do believe that this is what God is after. What kind of person is God looking for in a time of crisis? What kind of person is He after? I believe it's a person who has a proper view of God. In fact, I, I'll say this and have no fear of contradiction. Your Christian life is a, is a direct reflection of your view of God. How you view God is behind how you live. Unquestionably. Unquestionably. And not just the facts you know about God, but the deep Commitment to the reality of those facts is what dictates how you live your life. You don't live your Christian life based upon having understood some clever little formula. You don't live your Christian life effectively based upon some moment in time at a camp or a conference or a service where you felt some zap up the back of your spine and you decided from then on you were going to walk a different walk. No, no. You live your Christian life in direct response to your doctrine of God. And how you see God and envision God and understand God to be is what controls your life. That is why it is essential that you have a vision of God as sovereign, majestic, all-glorious, exalted, lifted up, and absolutely holy and intolerant of sin. And when you see God like that, you'll see yourself as you ought to see yourself, like James did. You'll see yourself and you'll humble yourself and you'll weep and mourn over your condition. You can see illustrations of this throughout Scripture. Even Peter, when he knew Jesus had arrived and commanded the fish to get in his net, said, depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. He didn't say, hey, I'm a hero. Jesus sent the fish into my net. He said, go away, Lord, I can't stand the intimidation. And then the disciples, it said, were in the boat and a storm came and they were afraid and Jesus stilled the storm and they were exceedingly afraid. And what is more frightening than having a storm outside your boat is having holy God in your boat. Because all of a sudden you're exposed and He's holy and you're wretched. And when you see His holiness, you see your sinfulness. So what have you got here? you got a man who had a vision of God, but the vision of God devastated him. It shattered him. It destroyed him. It crushed him. And he saw the reality of his own fallenness and his own wretchedness. And you say, why did he pick on his mouth? Because it's out of the heart that the mouth, what? Speaks. And nothing is more indicative of the state of your heart than the words of your lips. And then in verse 6, we read this. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Can you imagine having a barbecue in your backyard, picking up a coal with the tongs and putting it in your mouth? 
That's exactly what the angel did. What's the point? The point is, here was a repentant man. Here was a man who saw his own sin. Here was a broken, weeping, mourning man who even pronounced a curse on himself and he knew what it meant because he'd just done it six times one chapter earlier. Here is a man who has that kind of attitude before God. And you might say, well, boy, this guy's in real trouble. But the truth is, where you have repentance and a penitent heart and a broken and a contrite spirit before God, God rushes in with cleansing, right? Cleansing is painful. That's the intent here. It's painful to repent of your sin. It's painful to admit what you are. It's painful to come to grips with your own unclean mouth as over against the utter holiness of God. But where you're willing to do that and you're honest enough to see yourself the way God sees you and to cry out to God about your own uncleanness, then God's going to send and touch and cleanse you. That's what he's doing here. Now, why all this? Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Stop at that point. Who will go where? Who will get sent where? Why? To these, to these people who are about to be judged. I've just pronounced a curse on them, but who's going to go and tell them? Who's going to go and warn them? God would never bring the judgment without a preacher to bring the warning. And so while the curses are pronounced in chapter 5, the preacher who's going to warn them about the judgment is called in chapter 6. So God says, who's going to go? Who's going to go for us? Us reading, referring to the Trinity. Well, I'll tell you one thing. There's only one guy there. There's only one. Uh, Isaiah would look around and say, nobody else here. This isn't, there's not a crowd here. It's just me. And I don't think he sort of threw his shoulders back and puffed his chest out and put his head up in the air and said, here am I. Send me. You know, not on your life, not on your life. I think he was in absolute terror. I think he was frightened that he wouldn't be consumed to death. I think he probably spit the burning coal out of his mouth with all the tissue of his flesh still attached to it. And there he was groveling in the dirt, recognizing his own wretchedness in the presence of a holy God who was a consuming fire. And he probably looked around and said to himself, there isn't anybody here but me. And he stumbling and bumbling said, Lord, here am I. You could send me. And somebody would say, ah, who wants a dirty mouth prophet from a bunch of dirty mouth people? Who wants you? But what did the Lord say? Verse 9. He said, go and tell this people. I'll tell you, folks, that's good news for us. What kind of people does God want in a time of crisis? What kind of people does God want for the United States of America and the world in which we live? Perfect people, clever people, erudite people, educated people, creative people. No, what he wants is cleansed people. People who have a vision of God, see themselves the way they really are, and people who will come humbly before a holy God to be cleansed. And then when God says, will you go, they say, I'll go. I'm not worthy to go. I don't deserve to go. I'm not what you deserve to have serving you, but I'll go. And God says, go. You're just what I'm looking for. Not perfect people, cleansed sinners. People who've been willing to take the cold of their lips and have the flesh seared and burned, who've gone through the pain of repentance and who have experienced forgiveness. And then one final note. He tells him in verse 9, by the way, nobody's going to listen to anything you say. What? Nobody? That's right. He goes on to tell them that their ears are going to be dull, their eyes are going to be dim in verse 10. Their hearts are going to be fat so they can't understand. And so nobody's going to pay any attention to you. And he asked the question I would ask in verse 11. Lord, how long? 
How long do I do this if nobody's going to listen? Do I do it a week? Do I do it two weeks maybe? He says, no, keep doing it until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. The houses are without people. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed everybody far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Do it till nobody's left. You say, what? That's right. I can tell you, young people, I've spent now the majority of my life preaching the word of God to people who aren't interested in hearing it. That's right. Most people aren't interested. Most people won't hear it. Most of the people I have witnessed to reject what I say to them. Most of the people you witness to will reject what you say to them. That's the way it is. Their ears are dull. Their eyes are closed. Their hearts are fat. They do not understand. And that's exactly what he told Isaiah. You say, then why do I do it? Verse 13, without going into detail, look at the end of the verse. The holy seed, he says, is its stump. He says at the root of this whole thing, there's a stump called the holy seed. That's the remnant that will believe. There's a few. At the beginning of verse 13, he says a tenth, a tenth, a remnant, a portion who will believe, who will believe. We live in a nation in crisis. I believe we live in a nation on the brink of judgment. I believe that our economic prosperity and our military power doesn't tell the truth about us. The truth is we are rotten to the core morally and spiritually. I believe we are on the brink of judgment. And I believe God wants to call out a generation of young people who have a vision of God, who see their own sin, who are willing to be totally cleansed, and who will go, though most people will reject them, to know that there is a holy seed out there that God wants us to reach. It won't be the majority, but they're there, and God has called us to them. And we live to reach the remnant of God's redeemed, yet unsaved. That's our calling. That's our challenge. Let's stand for prayer. Thank you, Father, for our time this morning. Make this a great day. And, Father, somehow give us the opportunity to confront you in such a way as Isaiah did, that we might see you for who you really are and see ourselves for who we really are and in repentance know the cleansing that can make us useful as we seek to reach that remnant that you've set your eternal hand on and will draw to yourself through our ministry. Make this a great and a fruitful day. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.